0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. I am your host, Frank LaRosa, and I am very honored and excited to have a special guest today, Brian Neville, who is the founding partner of Lax & Neville a Securities Law Firm in New York City. Brian and I have known each other for, for a long time, probably about 10 years or so, and he's a sort of trusted confidant that I will go to at times where I need really good piece of advice for one of my clients and eventually refer Brian to my clients to help give them legal guidance on any transitions. Brian, how are you doing? Awesome. Thanks for having me on today, Frank. It's a pleasure. I'm really excited. And this is going to be an interesting conversation because you are an attorney. Unlike a lot of times where I say, listen, I'm, I can give you some advice, but I'm not an attorney. So you have to talk to an attorney. You know, we understand that the conversations that we're going to have today, you're not giving anybody legal advice, it's listening to this conversation. And you really can't talk specifically about any one of your clients but because of your depth and breadth and knowledge of the business, you've seen cases, you've read cases and briefs. So a lot of the information we're going to talk about today is just your experience in the business. And so before we get into the sort of the grid of the conversation, maybe just give the audience who don't know you and haven't seen your wins from all the various cases that you've won for your clients and the millions of dollars I see all the time, but maybe give our audience just some background about you as an attorney and your your firm that you founded, Out of, I guess you're still out of New York City right now. So, but you've grown exponentially over the years.
1: Yeah, thanks, Frank. Happy to. So, you know, I've been practicing law almost 30 years now and doing really exclusively broker dealer legal issues. My partner, Barry Lax, and I formed Lax and Neville many years ago. We both started out in house counsel way back at a wirehouse. That's where we met just 30 something years ago. We both moved to regional brokerage firms where we both worked on a lot of issues, sales practice, regulatory, you name it. But I took on one of the roles of onboarding advisors and dealing with all the legal issues associated with advisors coming and going. And that was well before the protocol even came into existence. And 21 years ago, I went into private practice and really focused on the other side, where I now primarily represent advisors and any member of the financial services community. And I represent some of the largest teams Mm -hmm. and then have for many years now represented some of the largest teams in the country moving between firms i've helped advisors set up their own ria firms i've done every type of transition that you could think of frank you know your typical wirehouse to wirehouse move but wirehouse to independent wirehouse to regional people going from independent to forming their own broker dealers we've helped people do and i'm involved in every type of move it could be you know some of the mega teams that you'll see or it could be a smaller producer in middle america who's dropped into the bottom quintile out of firms, senior payout hit, and they want to go independent and they just need much more legal help because they need formation documents done, you name it, you know, we've done it. We get a lot of advisors who are been terminated or are under internal reviews, all types. And it's truly one of the, the areas of my practice I enjoy the most because most moves are happy times. People have stress involved in that, but Giving advice to people making a move where their careers are advancing is really some of the the work that we enjoy the most at our firm. So happy to have this conversation with you. And as you said, I'd like to say none of this is specific legal advice because if anyone's watching this, they haven't retained my firm. But this is a great general discussion that a lot of people, you know, here you have one of the better recruiters in the industry and, you know, not patting myself on the back too much, one of the more experienced attorneys who's done hundreds and hundreds of moves, so happy to have a conversation like this and happy to, to give people a launching point to get into
0: the, the process of what a transition between firms in, entails. That's awesome. You know, and one of the things that prompted this particular interview and in our conversation was some recent news of an advisor that went from RBC to UBS and slingshotted back to RBC. And it's hit the news, Advisor Hub covered it and Wealth you know, wealthmanagement.com covered it. And so- there's some issues there. And and I say to advisors that are my clients all the time, when they say, oh, I saw Morgan Stanley just sued this guy and won a settlement or whatever, you know, they they see the, the headlines. And my response to them without even knowing the case is, listen, my guess is that advisor did something he shouldn't have done. He or she shouldn't have done against the firm's counsel or against legal counsel to try to be cute, to try to gain the system to try to one up the firm or whatever it is they did something stupid. And in this situation, again, I wasn't involved in the case. It wasn't our client. I've never had that happen with one of my clients because, as you know, we, I give them pretty straightforward advice on what they can and cannot do, and and basically not to be cute and don't don't mess around. It's not worth it, right? So, you know, I think it's really important for us to have a conversation here, and it may seem like an elementary conversation between the two of us because we can go really deep. But I think that it's important for everybody to understand learning through others and mistakes of others, unfortunately, what they shouldn't be doing. So, you know, sort of getting right into it with that particular case, if you're familiar with it or have understanding, can you give us maybe some idea of what happened there that forces an advisor to go back to their firm that they left? You know, after moving, I think what the article said, 30 or 40 clients already, And I guess he took some documents, he took some reports, he took some performance reporting, different things. Maybe just talk a little bit about that and then segue into what you've seen as, and we'll start with things that you shouldn't be doing.
1: Yeah, no, Frank, and thanks for using an example to kind of kick off a discussion. And, you know, the first thing I'd like to say, you know, about that case or any other particular case, I can only comment on it so much. But I think one of the things you said is interesting, which is in a lot of these cases, Advisor Hub or one of the other publications will pick up on a story and a reporter will go in and get a comment from both sides. And then they'll selectively take a little piece of one of the pleadings and highlight that. And what we tend to do is we'll go on the online court system and pull the full set of pleadings and we'll read the actual request for a temporary restraining order, and we'll read all the affidavits, which are the factual statements sworn to by the firm that's seeking it. And we'll look at the attachments to see what evidence there really is. And you know, one of the things I'd like to say, kind of just starting this out, which is if you think about the number of transitions, if you think about the number of advisors moving between firms, and then you think about the number of TROs and the number of litigations, it's substantially less than 1% a year. So then I think one of the things you're asking is, what do you have to do to get into that 1%? And I think that's a great starting point. And, you know, one of the things I've heard a lot of times is when I get retained, it'll be, oh, you know, I just talked to three advisors who moved and this is what they did and they didn't get caught. So I'm not going to get caught. (laughs) And I use the classic example. If you're driving down the highway and you're the 10th car in a group that's doing 100 miles an hour, and the cop comes out and pulls you over, and he only gets you, and you go into court, do you have a defense that was, hey, I was the last of 10 guys doing 100 mile an hour? You know what the judge says? Guilty. He didn't have the other 10 guys, the other nine guys there. So, you know, one of the things is a lot of people are being made examples of for now for a whole host of reasons. It could be because they're a premier team. It could be because they want to get a press piece in about a particular thing that was done. And it could be, Frank, one of the things I've seen a lot of, it could be because the advisors took a particular category of information that is governed by SEC Reg SP, which is the privacy law. And then the firm has pressure on them because they've done some level of investigation and they now know the advisor took this information that is outside the protected information, say, in the protocol even if that firm is not in the protocol, and they know that a FINRA or the SEC saw that they were aware of this, and took no steps to get it back, that that firm would be under regulatory scrutiny. So, you know, kind of starting with the premise of, you know, what are some of the silly or, you know, stupid things that advisors do? The stupidest or silly thing you could do is taking client information that is protected by Reg SP. Because in that sense, then you're forcing the firm to... Get it back from you. And forcing a firm to sue you is not a good idea. So, can you give us
0: examples of what kind of data that is?
1: Sure. I mean, the the data that the SEC and FINRA and the regulators are most concerned about are things that can be used in identity theft and things that really are supposed to truly be protected. And things like that are date of birth, account number, social security number, tax IDs, anything that could really be used. But, you know, I would say to you, while those would be the focus any data that goes beyond the protocol and the protocol only allows as I think we all know now client contact information. So name, address, email address, and account phone phone numbers, phone numbers. Yeah. Phone numbers always. So you can bring contact information. Anything beyond that is ostensibly protected by reg SP and, and advisors shouldn't take. And then there's different categories Frank, of how advisors have that information. And one of the things we've seen of late is, during COVID lockdowns, right, a lot of advisors were put into situations where servicing their clients became much more difficult. Yeah, and, and firms became a little lax and a little less enforcing some of the rules because they had to make accommodations for all their advisors across a whole country servicing clients remotely. So, where account statements and performance reports occasionally mailed from work emails to personal email addresses, and did firms look the other way? Of course, I've talked to hundreds of advisors who did that because it was the only way to help their clients who during a time of crisis needed help, right? So you're doing the best for your client and that conduct is looked at the other way for 18 months, but now you're looking at making a move. And if a firm wants to make an example out of you and you haven't gone back into your personal email address and searched for anything that you have sent yourself, during, you know, now it's over 18 months since COVID started and you have that and you didn't delete it, a lot of judges, a lot of regulators are going to say you had stuff you weren't supposed to have. And it's not going to be a defense that, well, you let me do it for this course of time and I, should, I shouldn't I should be held to task for it now. And, you know, and there's upteen examples, you know, some of the headlines I read on some Merrill Lynch cases some time ago where you know teams purchasing ipad pros for their entire support staff who then sat in the office taking screenshots of their pictures and and then you know the old adage of loose lips sink ships those assistants are friends with other assistants and the story circulates around the whole office whether or not people are there or not and turns out you know that allegation caught my eyes that's just something pretty silly right like you don't buy your entire staff iPads right a month before you leave using your firm's BDA account. Oh, so you know, no. there's, <laughs> there's a whole <laughs> host of things, Frank. I mean, I'll give you some general examples of some things that I've seen in pleadings. You know, every firm when you leave will review a minimum of one month, but most likely three months of everything you and your team sent to the printer. And what they get is the file name and a few printing stuff that is outside your normal course of business. If you have a normal course of business that you could demonstrate for years, you would print out X type of reports. And then all of a sudden you change that pattern in practice. And there's no indication of where those documents are. And you can't explain what happened to them. They're going to allege that you printed them out and they don't know where they are. So they're
0: assuming that you have them.
1: You know, I could go on and on with silly examples.
0: Yeah, I used to give advice to advisors and they'd say, well, I printed out my my client's you know, statements because I wanted to just go through them before we left. And my advice to them is always, okay, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But make sure when you leave that those actual printed reports are on the back of your credenza or in a file cabinet. When your manager says, we noticed you printed off 200 statements a week ago, where are they? Right? You can say they're in my drawer. If you say, oh, I trashed them, I, I shredded them, they're not going to believe you. Frank, I couldn't agree more.
1: And I go one step further than you now. I tell the people, leave them on a cornenza, leave them on a desk and take a photo of it. But from a distance where the photo clearly can't pick up any of the information in the statement. So, and I also use that advice for other things, right? If you've been in an office a long time and you've got a lot of personalized effects, it's a huge red flag when you start walking out the door with duffel bags, with all your photos and trinkets and everything else. So while you should, you know, discreetly take out your tax returns, any kind of confidential information that you have in some files, and you should do that over the course of time. And I would tell most advisors, you really shouldn't keep that much stuff at work anyway. It's not your office. The firm owns it. But take photos of everything in your office from a distance because you're going to want to get it back. And you're not going to want to get into a dispute about whether or not your chair was a $2,000 custom chair or you know the TV on the wall. Just take pictures of everything, create an inventory. But getting back to the, the data that you printed out, Frank, that is a classic example. I would say that almost every pleading that I see doesn't start with the printing. There's usually something else that was done. But if they're going to sue you, they're going to add that in. And if you don't have an example of here's where it is specifically, and why not have a photo of it sitting there from a
0: distance to back it up? Right. Yeah, definitely. And I think that One of the things that maybe people don't realize is that this information that we're talking about, statements, performance reports, all of these things are gettable documents after you leave. I mean, most firms can have a letter or a form, you are going to call it a letter, that a client can sign that dictates to the prior firm that the client signing the form wants all of their files and information in those files sent over to the new advisor at the other firm, whether they are going to do it in a timely manner or not is a different story. But isn't that true? Like when I looked at this recent RBC to UBS back to RBC, I was like, what a silly It was silly because the information that he took, allegedly took, he could have just gotten afterwards anyway.
1: And I do think a lot of the activity that we're seeing recently came out of the COVID mindset that people really weren't going to the office as much. You know, I think it depends where you are in the country. Sitting where I'm at, you know, in the Empire State Building, New York City was probably more shut down than anywhere. I have clients nationwide where business was much more normal. And in the New York City area, a lot of people were work from home. You know, there was certain firms that had prohibitions against meeting clients in person. I personally know of financial advisors who were reprimanded and put under heightened supervision or or other things because they met with clients when they were told not to you Know the world's turned a little bit upside down when meeting with a client can get you into trouble. Yeah, right. Yeah. So but the COVID mindset created behavior. And you know, I you know, going into maybe one silly war story for a moment is a client sends you, Frank, as an advisor, a screenshot that they took when they go on to their phone, to their app, to their accounts, and they have a question about something and they send it to you. So now they've sent you a picture of their information. That was their property that they sent to you. And so you respond to the text because you're a rep and you can't text substantively. Hopefully you say, can't talk to you about this via text. Let me give you a call. So then you call them. And what do you do with that photo that was sent to you? You know, talk about best practices. One of the things I would tell any advisor to do if a client ever sends you something, as soon as you've responded to it, delete it, right? There's no need for you to have it anymore. And I know I've heard stories of advisors during COVID, they're home, they're working on a notebook computer. It's not like the setup you have behind you that I've seen a lot of people have. You have multiple screens. It's super easy. But I have a client asking you about a performance report while you want an account statement up and you want a research report up. So someone takes a picture of the screen on their phone and then they go here and then they forget about it. And, you know, let me tell you about one thing that scares me because I'm of an age when, you know, I went to law school and... Forensic discovery wasn't even something that existed, right? Like we got paper documents. The forensic discovery process in these temporary restraining order cases, every firm will seek an order from the court that the advisor's phones and all electronic devices, including computers, get mirrored, which means copied. So the hard drive is copied. And then the lawyers fight over what the search terms are but every single one of those forensic reviews will ask for that all the photos be reviewed, which sounds like an incredibly invasive process to every American that I know. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is there's a good reason for it because people take photos of their screens, client account statements, all kinds of things because they think they could evade it. But you know, these forensic firms are like the private CIA. They have artificial intelligence based programs that can go through your photos and identify photos that look like screenshots or photos of computer screens, put them off into a queue that then get reviewed by a human. And so the review that can happen if you are one of these less than 1% that gets picked on is so scary. It's one of the reasons why I'm glad we're having this conversation. People should seek to avoid it. And those that hear the stories from the five other teams
0: of, oh, this is what I heard they did, mostly they got lucky. They weren't smart. Right. That's a good segue, right? I mean, so if you're an advisor today and you're thinking about leaving your firm, what steps should you be taking, you know, 30, 60, 90 days out that are good practices, your, your sort of your best practices to avoid being put in a situation that you don't want to be put in?
1: There's a few things that happens. One of which I always start with is, Frank, if they're coming from you, and, and I would also say, you know, from a quality recruiter, someone that knows the business, you're going to have good advice about doing due diligence on the firms. So there's a fine line because there's a lot of information you have to have, right? Like You have to have your book's information and every firm is going to want to see that information. So the first part is make sure the information you're bringing about your book is clean. Like it doesn't have any client identifying information and all the firms that are recruiting, they don't want client identifying information, right? Like they just want to see what are your assets on the management? What is your T-12? All the things that are the measurements of how they're going to do a recruiting package, but just be careful because you're going to get instructions by each firm about what to give them and follow that and follow it in a way that you're not capturing any client facing data. So that would be the first step. And the other thing I would say, Frank, is also this process takes a little bit longer than I think almost everyone thinks it takes, right? And you've been through this. If you're an individual or you're a high-performing team, you're probably going to be doing due diligence on several teams, I mean, several firms. And every firm is going to ask you for a slightly different iteration of that information. Some of them might want to know, you know, is this team a good fit? We want to get access to, you know, what are their outside SMA managers or what are their Do they have concentrated positions? Do they have structured products? And so then advisors start getting a little bit like, well, what information can I give them? Well, you can give them any information about your book, but then you have to be careful that it doesn't overlay, contain any information about your clients. And mistakes have been made. We've all seen that. You might, by mistake, send something. The firm would hopefully capture that and say, hey, we're deleting this. You sent it in error. We didn't ask for it. You should delete it from your system. The firm will then even have a special way of locking it off in compliance because firms, they can't delete everything because of their email systems, but they can lock it off so only compliance can see it. So take your time, get it right, get the information that the due diligence, which is, as you know, Frank, it's a two-way street. You want to do diligence as a team on a firm. Firm wants to do due diligence on you. Get that data to them. Kick the tires out of firm. Understand where you're going to be. And, you know, I think someone like you could probably give better advice about the due diligence process than me. But one of the things I'm saying to the teams is spend the time, do it right, Right. get a lawyer involved in that process. One of the biggest problems I have is I will sometimes get retained and the process has evolved almost too far for me to have given proper advice because steps have been taken. And it's just like, well, I thought I'd only hire you because... We had business terms, and I only need you to lock down the advice on some legalese and the contracts. Well, I can certainly help with that. But having done hundreds of these, I can help you avoid the mistakes you might have made already by that time. And
0: you know that part, the upfront part, is also not expensive, and it's money well spent. Yeah, Brian. What about the fact that, and we do take our clients through a process, as you know, with some of the clients that we've worked on together, where you know they're going to talk to four, five, six firms. And at some point, those firms will say, oh, well, we have legal counsel, we're going to provide to you, right? I want to say not in every case, but and some of the smaller producers may not necessarily, that may be adequate. But in some of the bigger cases with multiple people, like you said, there's, you know, sales assistant issues, which we can get into about like, you know, when the sales assistant violates a protocol issue, it's as if the advisor violated the protocol issue. So we'll come back to that because that's an interesting topic. But the topic of should an advisor just go with the firm's counsel or in addition to that, and I know what our opinions are, right? But I want, I want you to explain to the audience why they should consider strongly, especially if they're a larger, more complex team, retaining their own counsel during this process. Yeah,
1: look, Frank, I think it's really pretty simple because I serve that role. For one of the largest financial institutions in the world, I am retained by them to provide counsel for advisors joining that firm. And I do it for a few small firms also. And all the lawyers that do that, that I'm aware of, are high quality, they're ethical, and they have to start off with a really simple explanation, which is, Mr. Transitioning Client, I'm going to represent you and I represent financial institution. I can do that only in areas of common interest because one lawyer can only represent two groups or entities or people if there's common interest. The area where you have common interest is getting from firm A to firm B without getting sued. Everything else is not common interest. If you want advice on your contract, that's arm's length. No one lawyer can do that. So that lawyer is precluded from helping you with your contract. And then you may say, well, what happens with this you know, deferred stock that I have over at Firm a, Most of the lawyers aren't retained to help with your old deferred comp issue. And then there may be instructions that that lawyer gets from the client who's paying about, we want your advice to be as conservative as advice is on a scale of advice. And so then the advice is coming at the direction of the client of the two that's paying for it. And then they're also going to say, and again, every lawyer I know that does this, and there's great ones, will say, this calls attorney-client privilege, Mr. Client, I represent you, and I represent the firm. But there's one big exception to that attorney-client privilege. Anything you tell me, I'm going to tell the receiving firm. Anything the receiving firm tells me, I'm going to tell you. And there's a euphemism that sometimes the exception swallows the rule. That's a perfect example. When the attorney-client privilege Is not true for anything I tell you because I'm thinking of doing X. And then the lawyer goes back and says, Affirm, oh, they're thinking of doing X. And then it's like, whoa, this is crazy. Like, that's a conversation I suggest everyone has with a lawyer who has attorney client privilege with just the team. Right. There's no one else they can tell. And then the advice may be, you shouldn't do that. That'll spook them. Or someone may say, you know, I have a client. He's my college roommate. We were best friends. We we're in each other's weddings, but he's become successful and he's a client now. And I can't make this move without telling him. And the most conservative approach advice on that might be, well, they are a client. You shouldn't tell them. And your personal lawyer's advice might be, hmm, I don't think there's a judge in the United States of America that says you can't tell the person who you went to college with, freshman year roommates, have stayed buddies with and you're in each other's wedding, that you're contemplating a move and you wanna bounce ideas off with them. So who do you want giving you advice in some of these things? And I also say this, as in most areas of the law, not everything's black and white. When it's a gray area of the law, you want someone who's just your lawyer giving you advice on that. And again, coming back to this idea, if, if you're going from a quality firm to another quality firm and they're hiring transition counsel, they're hiring a very good lawyer for you. And that lawyer is going to give you good legal advice. There's limitations on it. And the attorney client privilege isn't complete. And here's the other thing I would say, and this is a story I've been telling forever. I'm a lawyer. When I close on a piece of real estate, I hire a real estate lawyer that's just mine. And sometimes the bank says, well, we can get you on. And I, no, I don't want the bank's lawyer. I want my own. Right. So another euphemism is, is the lawyer going to bite the hand that feeds it? who's paying their bill and giving them the repeat business. Again, that's not to say they're not good lawyers. This is one of the most important legal documents that you will have in your whole entire life. These deal packages probably exceed multiples. Oh yeah. Of your mortgages. So why not have it reviewed? Don't be penny wise and pound foolish and get advice earlier than later.
0: You know, I think the biggest, the biggest thing is that lawyer and then they're a good attorney. Like I said, I know a lot of them they're being paid by the firm they're always going to have in the back of their mind who their client really is, you know, who's really paying the bill. And if something happens, if they I look at it, if something, something sticky happens, that attorney that's being paid for by the firm is going to, is going to cover them and going to leave you like, Hey, we didn't tell you to do this or we didn't, you know, you didn't listen to us and you're going to be left hanging out there by yourself. And then you're gonna have to go get an attorney after the fact Right, who doesn't know what happened, who didn't give you any advice, good or bad, and it creates problems. And our clients, you know, they're typically getting millions of dollars to make these moves, or they're not getting millions of dollars, but they're going independent and they're doubling their income, right? So to hire you for a period of time, it's like, would you go buy a house? Like you you said, would you go buy your personal residence and not use, you know, an attorney to go through everything? You would never do that. And so, why should you do something like this, which is, arguably more important than even your house is moving your business because it's, you know, it's probably your most important asset. I use that
1: phrase all the time, Frank. It is interesting because if you were to do a balance sheet and you were put a present value of the future income stream of the vast majority of people that you and I are talking to, it is their number one asset by multiples of X. It's just huge.
0: Yeah. You know, so I think that's really important. And, you know, especially in the, in this world of following rules, say following rules. Let's just say you need to follow rules, right? But like you said, there are situations where, you know, it's gray. And maybe one of the things you can just brief because you, you talked about with the friend and the telling the client you see he's his friend, but he's also his client. You know, look, there are some things that maybe you can just talk about what you can and cannot say. I would say what you can and cannot say to a client and/or friend if you're thinking about making a move. You haven't made any decisions or whatever, you know, where's that line that you can go to as an advisor to your top client, your most important relationship that you're like, I can't do this without me having an understanding of where I stand with, you know, Bill Smith, my biggest client.
1: So again, I got to give a little caveat up front of saying it would be very specific. But my earlier example was an easy one. If it's been your best friend since college or high school and they become successful, you know, I, again, I can't imagine a judge or an arbitrator saying you couldn't go to them to just bounce this idea off them. And, you know, I would say going to another extreme is if you work at an institution and you've been there 15 years and two years ago you inherit an account and it becomes your largest account but you really don't have much of a relationship with them at all other than professional. And to start claiming, Oh, we're great friends. We've played golf twice. You know, that's not going to cut it with a straight face. You know, I sit as a FINRA arbitrator. I'd be looking down my nose a little funny at you when you're claiming that you're great friends you met two years ago and you inherited the account. And, you know, so probably even midway between those where you're primarily having a professional relationship most judges and arbitrators are gonna say you breach your duty of loyalty.
0: I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit. And this is sort of what's your temperature on on a comment like this. And this was the, with a caveat that I I advise all of our clients, and you know, I'm not an attorney, but I'm doing this long enough and have been on those calls. You know, you can't tell a client that you're leaving. If you are leaving, you can't tell them when, where. And you certainly can't say, if I leave or when I leave on the December 15th, will you come with me? If you're listening to this and you're thinking about making a move, you can never do that, right? But what is your opinion about talking to a client who has become a friend because they were your client for 15 years to say, you know, hey, Brian, as you know, I I haven't been happy here. You've experienced some of those frustrations as a client. And I just want to let you know that if there ever comes a time where you call here and I'm not here It's because I chose to take another opportunity where I felt like I could better the service I'm giving to my clients. I just want to know how you feel about that or something to that effect where you're not saying anything, but you're telling the client you're unhappy and there may be a chance down the road sometime that you're not there anymore. What's wrong with that?
1: Well, I mean, again, again, it's fact specific. So, you know, just throwing an example out there several years ago. You know, take a firm like Wells Fargo when they had the account opening scandal. But it could have been UBS with the Swiss tax scandal, or it could have been, you know, Prudential Securities twenty something years ago with the limited partnership scandal. We could come up with a million scandals that are on the front page of the papers, and you have a, a client that you are now fairly friendly with, right? Like, you're not golfing every weekend, but you're getting together with them every other month, and you really have a friendly relationship, right? You know, your spouses know each other. You've been invited to their home for special occasions like birthdays, bar mitzvahs, whatever. So there's an integration that is friendly. And this person knows you and they call you up and they say something like, Holy cow, dude, your firm's on the front page of the business section again. What's it like there? And you say, ah, You know, it's like a morgue around here. Everyone's attitude's in the dumper and it's not an easy place to work. And they say, I'll give you another one. And they say to you, Well, look, I've had a lot of friends in a lot of sticky spots. And if you ever go anywhere, my loyalty is to you. And now they've kind of opened the door. And I've heard that story many times through the years. And I would say, like, you should be cautious. But that discussion where someone's even opened the door for you, I don't think a lot of judges or arbitrators are going to say, you couldn't have that discussion. You couldn't answer a client's question honestly and accurately. So, you know, but I think the danger comes where you're opening the door with someone, and it's going to be gradations up and down the line.
0: Yeah, because you have to be careful if you decide to have that conversation. By the way, if you're thinking about having that conversation, you need to run that past your attorney to say, what can I say? What can I say? How do I say it to this client or that client? Like give specifics about these particular clients, right? But if you're having those conversations where you can't go is – you know, hey, I'm glad you're not happy with the firm either. You know, I've been looking around and I'm probably going to go to Raymond James in in about 60 days, you know, you know, would you come with me? Like, you can't do that, right?
1: Yes, I think, Frank, the answer to that is it's so specific, right? The more sophisticated your client is, the more likely that conversation is credible. So, you know, I'll throw my mom under the bus here as I always do in these typical conversations, but she's an 80-year-old retired nurse who was the kindest, gentlest, best nurse you could ever have. But when she became a widow, her financial sophistication was very low. And her relationship with her advisor is crazy, super professional. There's no real relationship there. So if you're trying to fake an arbitrator or a judge that you're having this conversation with that type of person, it's never gonna carry weight. But coming over to the other extreme of, you know, I've had advisors come to me and say, they were having, you know, a bunch of problems with firm products. And we've seen this through the years, like a firm sponsored product blows up yep. and you're the advisor and the client's in and saying, you know what, Frank, I don't blame you. I blame your firm. This was their due diligence, their investment bankers, their everything. It came out at 10, you know, it's 18 months later, it's trading at $1.80. Either you leave that firm and I go with you or I'm leaving without you. All and right you know, what are you going to say to that client? You didn't say, well, I'm exploring opportunities because I'm as angry and all the other clients are as angry as you are. Right. And you know, the firm's going to come later and they're going to say with a straight face and a pleading you, Frank Larosa, you broke your duty of loyalty to us and having that conversation. And I think you could say back with a straight face, I broke my duty of loyalty. My client's tell me I have to leave the firm because of the problems you created. So there are, there are situations. I mean, Through the years, right, some of the biggest bouts of clients coming to us in clumps are things like scandals, product problems, issues that have occurred. And more than in any other move, you need counsel for something like that because you can have clients saying, I'm about to file a complaint. And then you're thinking, this is reportable. I'm going to have yes answers. How do I move from firm A to firm B right now? Five clients who are complaining about a firm product that changes your recruitability massively. Right. So, you know, I mean, and again, we've been around so many years, we've seen all these things, but what you can say to a client is so fact specific and you should be truthful both to yourself and to your lawyer when you're having that conversation about what the relationship really is like. And if it, one of the true litmus tests is did the relationship precede them becoming a client, right? So if you were friends with them before they became a client, that's probably someone you can speak to. If they became friends after
0: you were a client, it's going to mitigate towards the firm's argument that you shouldn't talk to them, but a million okay. facts in between. Got it. So last thing, and we could go on, like I said, we can go on for so long with this whole thing, right? Cause it keeps evolving and changing and, you know, but on the topic of changing, maybe what's the one thing or the biggest thing that I'll call it the, the train coming down the tracks that advisors should be thinking about that you see changing, potentially changing how advisors transition from firm A to firm B. So it's not necessarily a protocol thing, right? Because some firms are in it, some firms are out of it. UBS is out of it and Morgan Stanley's out of it, but they're still doing a lot of recruiting. They're still losing guys, but they're still doing some recruiting. So I don't know where I stand on that one. But is there anything that you see from a regulatory standpoint that advisors should be thinking about down the road that might make it slightly more challenging for them to make a move or not? I don't know.
1: I mean, I think there's a few things I can answer there, Frank. I think one of the things you want to be thinking about is always evaluate your book. Always be aware of, you know, we've been retained and you have a background in, in firm management. And, you know, some people will come in and say, you know, I can't believe I got in trouble for X or I can't believe I was terminated. My manager told me, you know, I might start want to look for a job, but I didn't think he was serious. Well, if you're ever told You might want to start looking for a job, start looking for a job. And I always say, start before that. Everyone in this industry should be keeping the temperature of what they're worth in the marketplace, just in case. Keep one ear open and then understand where the trend is, right? So right now, for a while, the trend is that the recruiting packages are, are really good. The firms are out there. There's better options, in my opinion, than in my whole entire career. There's more flexibility than ever. And, you know, I do think one of the trends that we're all a little bit concerned about is this idea of who owns the relationships. And there are certain institutions out there that are viewing it more as they own the relationships and that you don't as the advisor. And I think the more you see that at any firm that you're at, the more you should be worried. And I think that if there was ever a time to consider moving away from an institution that is thinking of going more salary bonus or is looking to tie more and more of your compensation into deferred compensation that you have to stay a lengthy time to get, you should be very wary of that. I think another thing to really worry about, Frank, any advisor who is on a team that has some multi-generational aspects to it and they're thinking of doing a retirement program, every firm's retirement program changes constantly and the change that i've seen in the last five years is towards more restrictions for both the retiring advisor and the receiving advisor than ever All so right. you might be thinking to yourself hey i'm at this protocol firm everything's fine they want me to match up with you know this great guy i've known across the hallway who's been a great old solo he's got a nice little buck 100 million tight households why wouldn't i take it just sign on this dotted line and you sign some dotted line, you never yeah, look yeah. at it. And all of a sudden, it has all these carve-outs and says, none of these accounts are afforded the protection of the protocol. None of these accounts. And not only could you not solicit them, if you receive them and service them, you have to pay us liquidated damages of 250% of the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And people are like, what, what are you talking about? i remember remembered a protocol. <laughs> and he signed a document that says this doesn't apply. So trends to watch out for are, even though firms are members of the protocol, there are documents and agreements and things. And, and even that, the protocol firms are entering into what they call, you know, limited jointer agreements, which means we're part of the protocol with these exceptions. And I haven't met a financial advisor yet who's read the protocol, who has even read their firm's jointer agreement, much less the limitations on it. Right. So if you're thinking of making a move, one of the things I would say is get on board with someone like Frank and- any of the guys on his team, have them educate you about the marketplace fairly early on in that process, retain counsel. So you have some sense of what are the obligations you're under as an individual? Because I've asked a whole host of people, what agreements do you have? I don't have any copies of them. And then I'll say, well, what year or so did you join? I can go back into my forms bank because I represented so many advisors. Oh, I have the Merrill Lynch Agreement from you know 2000. Or, oh, you did a CTP program or an alpha program, or you did this, oh, you, you don't have a copy, I have a copy. Guess what, here's where it says, oh, you took that special silver platter Bank of America referral program? That says this, you didn't know that? So we educate our clients and we bring them to a place. And then, you know, even with this idea of, well, the firm's gonna provide me counsel. Okay, then I may be half price. You don't need as much advice on the transition because they have high quality transition counsel. Let us negotiate your agreement. We he's talking about what you just said about we could go on all day. I helped the team recently, Frank. They had no recruiter and they had gone right up to three weeks before to move. Mm-hmm. I'm analyzing their deal and their back ends were ridiculously unattainable for them. Right. And we did an analysis based upon what their Kager was and showed that they'd have to double their Kager to reach them. We recommended them dropping back on their back ends so the deal became lower but attainable a year and a half later we got a giant thank you call because we were analyzing these things if they'd had you they wouldn't have been in a deal like that but so i i would say go about this process deliberately you know fortunately the vast majority of people that you and i deal with frank they're not in an emergency situation they can take their time they can do it right for those folks out there that are watching this because you might've just found out you're under investigation for something. That's a whole special situation. You need us even more then, but the time will be crunched. Your options will be more limited and we're happy to help everyone.
0: Yeah. I was, I was advised that in those situations, I get those calls often. We did a podcast called unintended consequences. And I tell them that the first thing that they need to do is, is get counsel like right away. And I can provide counsel referrals. We work with multiple people. It's really important to get that going as soon as possible. But that's the same thing when you get the sniff of when your manager says, well, compliance is just going to interview. They have some questions for you, but don't worry about it. You know, it's not a big deal. It's a big deal. You should get counsel. If nothing happens, nothing happens. You know, they told, you know, Morgan Stanley went through this whole thing with a retirement program where there was some issues with joint accounts and the retirement advisor getting the full credit or whatever. They fired a lot of advisors. And there was a lot of those advisors that weren't getting ahead of the situation, I worked with a couple that had called me because of my experience at Morgan Stanley as a complex director and saying, "Hey, what do you think?" I'm like, "If you're being investigated for something like this and they are using outside counsel to do it, you need to be thinking about your options and I know you don't want to hear that and whatever because it's complicated, but you need to get an attorney and you need to you need to start taking actions yourself because they're not they're not going to tell you ahead of time. They're going to tell you at the last minute. And to your point about not keeping personal documents in your in your office, that's a piece that no one understands. Like you shouldn't have your personal information in your office because when those situations come about, they're not letting you go back to your office to clean your stuff up.
1: Yeah, you might want to go back because you have prescription drugs in the top drawer that you really want to get, and they're no, we'll we'll <laughs> carry them right. out to you. Yeah, then, yeah, and, but so. yeah, people, you know. We could tell war stories all day. People have some pretty embarrassing stuff in their drawers that they shouldn't. So, right, exactly. Both, right, so, this was great.
0: Yeah, definitely. Listen, I appreciate it. And again, I think the moral of the story here is that they if you're thinking about making a move, you need to be working with professionals, both pre move with a firm like mine and pre move and post move with a firm like yours. So, you know, aside from the, you know, Lax and Neville being the name of the firm and maybe they can Google that, you know, what's the best way for an advisor that's even thinking about this and wants to just have a a basic conversation about should they retain you? Should they not retain you? How do they How do they reach you?
1: Yeah, I mean, so there's a bunch of right? ways. You could call the office, the number's on our website. You could shoot an email to me, anything like that. And I'll tell you, like, we give routinely half hour, 45 minute introductory phone calls to anyone. In particular, anyone that comes from a recruiter like yourself that we have a relationship with, we're happy to have an introductory phone call and explain what we do and the value we add. And you know the close rate is incredibly high, but it's not 100 set. And I never mind someone calling to kick the tires and see if this is what they want to do. They choose not to use me. No hard feelings. Wish them the best of luck. Hopefully, they got something out of that initial consultation. And yeah, I would reiterate what you just said, Frank. It is the most important documents, that agreement with your firm and the associated agreements you have in your life. Your license is your biggest asset. Protect it.
0: Well, this was awesome. I hope that everyone listening to this got something out of it. Um, we can certainly go for hours on these topics because it's that important. You know, Finding the right firm is really important, but make sure you get there safely, uneventfully, is equally as important because it helps you ramp up time and all that stuff. So you know, I appreciate your insight. You certainly are, in my opinion, a 10,000-pound gorilla when it comes to the securities law in this business which is why I was glad you're on there, which is why I refer some of my, my bigger clients to you. So I appreciate it very much. Thank you for everybody listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you have any questions, you can reach out to me at frank at com or you can call me at 856-316-4651. Like I said, you can go to Brian's website. Brian, what is the website? It's com, or you could just Google lax and Neville and we'll pop and, up. And it's L-A-X, right? L-A-X, Neville. L-A-X, got it. Awesome. All right, Brian, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Frank. Be well. Thanks for listening to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. If you're looking for more advice or solutions on any topics in the financial services industry, or you just want to subscribe to our podcast, head on over to EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcasts.